in line. It's good to have you. Um, let me identify some of the activities that we have going on at the church. And then we'll uh, pray together and sing together and have some uh, special speaker today. All right. Um, if we have any visitors, we want to welcome you. Hopefully you got a bulletin and you can identify with some of the activities that we have going on in the church. Let me uh, uh, note that the youth are going to meet this evening at 6 o'clock. And I assume that's here. Yep here at the church at 6 o'clock. The women have their Bible studies on Tuesday, the one at 9.30 in the morning, and again at, from 6 to 8 in the evening. BBS is upcoming, and we have a sign-in sheet out in the foyer, so if you would uh, like to participate, if the Lord is leading you in that way, um, please sign up so that we can uh, make sure we have enough folks to go around to, uh, to lead the VBS. It's always a great ministry for us. It's a good outreach. We have lots of... Uh, uh, local kids and, uh, and uh, unchurched kids who uh, who do come, so it's a great uh, great opportunity for us to uh, to, do, to do outreach. Oh, we have. Let me identify. Also, we have a men's uh, breakfast coming up on June eighteenth, eight a.m. in the morning. So that'll be a breakfast in a, just a couple of weeks. I think that's all the announcements. Uh, did I miss anything? Well, if not, then let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll, uh, we'll sing together. All right? Will you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we do, uh, we do come th this day to start our day with you, to realize, Lord, that uh, the, the things that you've already done for us, the way that you've made for us a way to heaven, we pray, Father, for those who are with us today, Lord, that you would uh, bless those here, open our hearts to the, tr the teaching of your word, the singing of the songs, that we would worship you through that. And also, Lord, we pray for those who are not with us today, who uh, haven't been able to come for some reason or another. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's traveling. But we know that many, many folks are with us online and watch. And we pray, Lord, also that uh, you would bless this church. We, there are many issues going on in our world around us today, and we know that you're still in control. It seems like at times that things are kind of out of control, but we know that you still have your your hand on the tiller, and you're moving things in the, in the way towards uh, the, the final return of Christ for our, for our salvation, for our redemption. So, Lord, we do pray now that you would bless this service, and we turn it over to sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Would you stand with us for a time of worship? song 
join the one that never ends because he lives. I was dead in the grave. I was covered in sin and shame. I heard mercy call my name. Then he rose up from that grave 
my God still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. My God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. Sing it out, church. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We are forgiven, except redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out Your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. God is surely in this place, and we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. This joy in the house of the Lord. This joy in the house of the Lord today, and we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. This joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place, and we won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. We shout out your praise. Strong and mighty fortress, 
Well, good morning. morning. We have a special treat this morning. Uh, My friend Paul, who I must now refer to as Dr. Miles, uh, most recently, Dr. Paul Miles is here with his wife, Lena. Lena, would you wave your hand back there? We don't want to forget Lena. And Oliver is somewhere. All right, he's there. Their son Oliver came with them, and they are lately from the booming metropolis of Winniewood, Oklahoma. Is that how you say that? Winniewood? Yep. That's where Joe Exotic is from, right? You've heard of it. I've heard of Joe Exotic. I'm sure that they're personal friends with Dr. Paul Miles here. No. Um, No, but that's where you would have heard of Winniewood, Oklahoma, um, if for no other reason. But you should know about it because it's the U.S. base of Grace Abroad Ministries here, which is well, you can read it for yourself, a ministry of translation, teaching, and outreach. And, uh, but Paul and his wife are actually based, I mean, that's their U.S. base, but in Ukraine. Now, what, what city are you in in Ukraine? Kiev. In Kiev. Okay. Uh, they have moved around a couple times, so I didn't know uh, where that is. And so, um, obviously, they are not going back immediately uh, at present to there. So, Paul, if you would also share, because Lena, you're from Ukraine originally, correct? So, her family is there. This is a very significant personal thing. So we would like to know how to pray for you sure. and, and Lena and Lena's family especially, specifically as well as your wonderful presentation. I'm sure it'll be a wonderful presentation <laughs> if you would do that. Thanks. All right. Appreciate you. Great to be Hold back on. in El Paso. Hold on, Paul. Whoa, wait. Children, go to Children's Church. <laughs> see, I forget it even when we got a special guest speaker. All right. <laughs> okay. Run along then. I see how it is. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I don't, I don't need your criticism anyway. <laughs> Children's ministry is a great thing. It's such a, a, a vital demographic to be reaching. I think it's great that we have a children's ministry. So, uh, yes, my wife and I uh, serve in Kiev, Ukraine. That is Kiev, not Kiev. Kiev is the Russian pronunciation. Um, we started Grace Abroad Ministries in 2016 to promote doctrinally sound theology in Ukraine and abroad through translation, teaching, and outreach. Lena is originally from 
uh, Ukraine. She was born in uh, Dnipropetrovsk, which has changed names to Dnipro. And that's unfortunate. Well, it's, it's good because it's de-Russification, but I worked so hard to learn how to say Dnipropetrovsk, and now I can't show that skill off. So nuts. <laughs> um, so we started the ministry in 2016. I moved to Ukraine in 2011. I wanted to be a missionary to Ukraine, so I became an immigrant first. I uh, just moved out there in 2011, got a secular job teaching English, got involved with a uh, local church that had a really doctrinally sound Bible college attached to it. That's where I met Lena. She had, been, uh, she had just graduated from the college. She was working there as a translator, and we met in church. Now, when I tell Ukrainians that I met my wife in church, they always say, oh, that's so romantic. What holiday was it? Because <laughs> in the Eastern Orthodox world, they only go to church on the holidays, right? And I was like, just, uh, just Sunday. Comes once a week. So we fell in love and got married and all that mushy stuff and uh, uh, saw a real need for theologically sound theology in Russian and Ukrainian. So we developed Grace Abroad Ministry around the translation need, and we also do teaching, which we describe as helping Christians understand the Bible better, and outreach, which we describe as reaching unbelievers for Christ. Um, Ukraine is the, uh, the Bible belt of the former Soviet Union, which is the Bible belt of Europe. So it's a really strategic country. A problem, though, is that although they have significantly more evangelicalism, than the world around them in Europe, the evangelicalism is very weak. It is succumbing to false doctrine time and time again. Uh, so we think that if we really want to have a uh, strong outreach, the way to start is by teaching Christians the Bible and getting them fired up and doctrinally accurate so the word can go out. So that's sort of why we have an emphasis on doctrinal teaching. We came to America on August 31st last year with a return ticket for February 14th. Uh, we figured by flying on Valentine's Day, we'd get a discount or have fewer people on the planes. Uh, well, it turned out the plane was very empty because the flight was canceled. <laughs> the uh, Russian troops were gathered up on the border. So we postponed our return trip, and that ended up being a wise decision as the war escalated on February 24th. Um, the situation is uh, really difficult in Ukraine. Um, we have our family and our church there in two different cities, both of which were bombed this morning. I don't want to put a lot of our uh, personal business out there on the Internet for any weirdo to, to, to look at, but uh, we'd be happy to disclose any of our uh, information with what's going on with our family, with anyone in this room in a personal discussion afterwards so as not to drain our time here and from the pulpit. Um, and uh, now for something completely different. Responding to Marxist baloney in contemporary Christian missions. Uh, I mentioned that uh, there are problems going on in evangelicalism. Uh, as a missionary who is somewhat doctrinally minded, I've got my fingers a bit on the pulse. And... Uh, since our return to Ukraine is delayed, I've had the privilege of coming to uh, other churches from our school of thought to discuss some problems that are creeping into missiology. Um, uh, 
In short, we are living in very uh, crazy times. We're hearing a lot of messages about social justice, about eco-justice. Of course, this is Pride Month, so you can't go anywhere without seeing rainbow flags, which, biblically speaking, the rainbow is a beautiful symbol of the Noahic covenant and God's promises. But we have somehow or another as a culture turned this into a symbol of something completely different, which is not honoring to God, I don't think. Now, we expect the world to be opposed to Christianity. That's to be expected of the world. Uh, What's unfortunate is that a lot of what's happening out in the world is starting to trickle into Christendom, even into evangelicalism, and we're seeing it in missions. So I'd like to talk a bit about that. Um, I've recently had uh, an academic article on this topic published in a journal. I've got another publication coming up soon that we'll discuss some of this more. You can follow me on academia.edu. By the way, I almost forgot, get a free book in the back. Um, Our ministry has recently started the International Society for Biblical Hermeneutics to develop and promote dispensationalism abroad. We put out this volume with uh, five other uh, Bible teachers. Feel free to grab a free copy on the table in the back. Holler Holler at me with any questions. You can sign up for our newsletter back there as well. Okay, so... Um, today we will discuss a few things. Um, for those of you who were here in the Sunday school hour, we discussed soteriology. What is soteriology? Doctrine of salvation. Very good. We're going to see how that doctrine of salvation, taken biblically, will refute a lot of the problems that are coming into evangelicalism today. We will also look at eschatology. What is eschatology? doctrine of end times, and how that will refute several of the Marxist things that are coming into uh, Christianity today. Um, Something I love about El Paso Bible Church is that y'all have a doctrinal pastor. So I'm able to come in here and talk about the Bible as if you already know a thing or two about it, because you come to El Paso Bible Church where the Bible is taught well. So, buckle your seatbelts, you're in for a ride today. Let's first talk about some of the aspects of our idea of soteriology, faith alone and Christ alone. I can contrast that to other views in this book, by the way, in chapter one. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about our view of eschatology, uh, specifically dispensationalism is a fancy word tossed around, or postponement theology. We'll look at that, and then we're going to look at what The theologians are saying about liberation theology, which is this social justice stuff. And then we'll look at what the theologians are saying about eco-theology, and we will use our soteriology and eschatology to refute that. Make sense? Okay, I'm seeing a lot of nots. That's good. Okay, for those of us who missed the first session, we will summarize it briefly. God is infinitely holy, and as such, he is separate from that which is unholy. The world is not, by default, holy. And so we could say that there is a uh, sin barrier between God and the world. However, Christ came and he paid for the sins of the world. The whole, all the sins of the world were laid on Christ at the cross. 
and Jesus paid for it. So there is no longer a sin barrier between God and man. Does that make sense? Everyone's sin was put on Christ. Everybody, as a result, is savable, right? Nobody has to do any good works. Nobody has to stop sinning to be saved. That issue has already been paid for. This doesn't mean that everybody is saved. It just means that everyone can be saved. Anyone is saved as soon as he believes in Jesus for eternal life. We don't have to do any kind of works for it. Make sense? That's your soteriology in a nutshell. Now, eschatology. We believe there is coming a day when we will have a messianic kingdom here on earth. Um, we believe that it was that Jesus offered to establish this kingdom on earth, but he was rejected, so he postponed it to the future, so it is still future. Now, the first hint that we see of this postponement theology comes in Genesis with the curse, when uh, God curses the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed and her seed. You shall bruise his heel, and he shall bruise your head. The head bruise being a fatal wound. So we see a two-stage development there. Now, I don't think there's a whole lot you could pull from that passage alone. But as we move along in Scripture, a few chapters later, we get the Abrahamic covenant, which has three provisions. What are they? Land, seed, and blessing, right? God says that he will give land, seed, and blessing to Abraham. This is to be fulfilled in the Messianic kingdom. Now, each of these three uh, parts of the covenant have their own covenant that was brought out as we get uh, more and more further down the line in progressive revelation. The land promise was developed in the land covenant. The seed promise was developed in the Davidic covenant. And the blessing promise was developed in the new covenant. So in the end, the messianic kingdom is going to be the fulfillment of all of these promises that God made to Israel. Make sense? Okay, very good. Good job, Joshy. Keep them straight. I like that. So these covenants is, are essentially the, the basis for the coming messianic kingdom. Now, when Jesus was here on earth, he had this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We take that to mean, he was saying, repent and I will establish the kingdom here on earth. Now, there's a big debate going on among theologians. Does repent mean a change of action or is it just a change of mind? There's a case to be made for either. But in the end, Israel did not change their works, and they did not change their mind. So it's a bit of a moot point here. In the end, Israel rejected Christ. Uh, perhaps one of the most thorough rejections was there in Matthew 12, at the uh, point when Jesus is performing miracles, and Israel's leadership attributed those miracles to Beelzebub speaking out against God in that sense. Now, the uh, technical term you might hear about that is uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy means to speak out against. Every now and then I come across someone who says, oh, I can't be saved. I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Nope, that's wrong. Uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was a one-time national sin that Israel committed. Even if you did commit it, where did that sin go? Onto Christ at the cross, right? No sin is preventing anyone from being saved. But 
Here Jesus is, he's offering the kingdom, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They have rejected him thoroughly. So after this point in Matthew 12, he no longer speaks of the kingdom as being at hand. He only speaks of it as being in the future. In other words, Jesus has postponed the kingdom to a future day. Make sense? All right, rocking and rolling. So, Jesus has postponed the kingdom to the future. He didn't put it on earth in his life. Now, there are still some uh, prophecies that need to be fulfilled. Uh, perhaps most significantly, the, the cross, right? We see uh, very clearly throughout the Old Testament that Jesus was going to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. Well, that had to come. There's still a future tribulation period. It's going to last seven years. We read about that, for example, in Daniel and elsewhere. So there's still, that has to come to place before the uh, coming messianic kingdom. Well, since, the, uh, since Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel, since they rejected him, uh, asking nicely isn't going to get them to repent. So that's one of the purposes of the tribulation, to push Israel to repentance so that the kingdom can come. In the meantime, since the tribulation is all about Israel, uh, we have the church age here and now where God is not only working with Israel, but all believers around the world. It's a unique dispensation. Now, since today is about the church, since the tribulation is about Israel, then it would follow that God will remove the church from the face of the earth so that he can turn his attention to Israel for these seven years. Once Israel accepts the Messiah, he will return with the church and establish the Messianic kingdom. That's, in short, the reasoning behind the rapture. Now, there's a whole lot of exegetical arguments we could get into about that, uh, but uh, we don't want this thing to turn into a hostage situation. We want to keep uh, the sermon relatively short, right? Okay, so that's faith alone in Christ alone soteriology, that Christ removed the sin of the world and anyone can believe in Christ and be saved. That's postponement theology, that Jesus offered the kingdom, but that he did not establish the kingdom, rather he postponed it. So let's take a look at what's happening in liberation theology. First, let's take a look at the anti-biblical roots of it, and then we'll look at what they're saying about salvation and what they're saying about the kingdom. I think if we look at what is happening under the hood, we'll see that the engine is, is quite broken down. So first of all, whenever we talk about liberation theology, this is related to social justice um, which really boils down to, historically, Marxism. Now, Karl Marx was an economic theorist, and everywhere that his ideas have been practiced, life has gotten worse, not by a little, but by a lot. And there is not a single exception to this rule. Yet, for some reason, we keep seeing Marxists trying to bring about this Silly utopia, it's not going to happen. Um, Marx, was a Marx was a German. He lived in Germany in uh, the uh, 19th century. Then time goes along. Uh, we see that there was a failed uh, attempt of having a Marxist utopia in the Soviet Union. Uh, Marxism failed in uh, Germany whenever they established the National Socialist 
movement, which ended up absolutely miserably. So in Frankfurt, there was a school of thought, the Frankfurt School, that tried to develop Marxism in a new way. This actually led up to the National Socialist Movement. Um, but in short, while Karl Marx was an economic theorist, his theory was that there are the rich people oppressing the poor people. The Frankfurt School came up with a critical theory. Critical theory says that there are different groups that oppress other groups. Um, the critical theory that led to the National Socialist travesty included the idea that there's this minority people, the Jews, who are oppressing the rest of us, so we need to eradicate the Jews. That is an absolutely satanic idea. In the aftermath of the National Socialist, I emphasize socialist there, experiment, they started uh, reconfiguring it a bit, and they came up with other groups that are oppressing others. Um, feminist theory came out of that, saying that women are an oppressed group being oppressed by men, for example. We get into different races. This is where critical race theory comes in, right? African Americans are being oppressed by non-African Americans, so they are a critical group, for example. Have you heard this term critical race theory? I assume. Okay, that's where it comes from. It comes from the Frankfurt School, the same people that brought you the National Socialist Movement. By the way, there's another fruit of the Frankfurt School that I happen to uh, be a little upset about. There is the Eurasian Movement, which is the ideology that Putin is using in his war against Ukraine. The Eurasian movement is developed as a philosophy that's developed most by Alexander Dugin. You can read his Wikipedia page. But he bases a lot of his philosophy off of this guy, Martin Heidegger, who was a member of the Frankfurt School. And by the way, if you look at this guy right here in the red circle, that is Heidegger, who is one of the most influential philosophers behind Putin's Russia. And, uh, oh my goodness, where is uh, Heidegger in this picture? At a giant National Socialist meeting because Heidegger was a Nazi. Okay? Now, after the collapse of the National Socialist Movement, Heidegger and other Nazis continued to promote their ideology. They just reconfigured it a little bit to get rid of the swastika and look nice. But the actual fundamental presuppositions of Nazism remained in effect through critical theory through today. So that's the 20th century. Um, a significant development to critical theory came about in America in the 1980s through intersectionality. Has anyone heard that word being thrown around lately? Intersectionality is critical theory but it discusses how uh, different people can be parts of multiple groups. It was actually first developed in a legal discussion in the Harvard Law Review. Kimberly Crenshaw was the uh, lawyer scholar who came up with this idea that we have uh, black legal specialists, we have women legal specialists. There should be a specialty for black women who are 
susceptible to a particular group of crimes, is what she said. Now, on the surface, that sounds like it might be a good idea, but with time, it just went absolutely bonkers. So race became a new issue, uh, gender became an issue, and then that split off into changing gender to where it's not a matter of sex, but rather a matter of how you identify yourself. Disability and ability came into it. Sexuality came into it. Before long, anybody and everybody can be a member of multiple groups, and your um, level, if you will, of oppression can rise or fall. Right? This is a significant contribution to the discussion beyond that of what Hitler was doing. Um, so what are some uh, quotes here? Here we have uh, Pamela Leitzey, who is an African-American queer, lesbian, womanist scholar, theologian. Uh, those are her words, her description of herself. She says, the disenfranchisement of women intersects with the disenfranchisement of black men, of poor people, etc. The disenfranchisement of black lesbian women intersects with the disenfranchisement of transgender women, and so on. Okay? So you see how intersectionality works, different oppressed groups joining together. Um, that's a theologian speaking, not just a secular philosopher. Here's a, uh, another theologian. This is a queer theologian. Now, when I was a kid, the word queer was a bad word. Today, it has become an acceptable word. It means anyone other than a cisgendered heterosexual. And uh, she would say, questions of sex and questions of race are always inextricably related. That's intersectionality for you. Okay, so that's where critical theory is today. This serves as the basis for a lot of the theories and theologies that are influencing missions. Um, now here is a uh, feminist theologian. Uh, now, when I say queer theology, feminist theology, black theology, what that means is critical theory produced black theory, which is the theory of how blacks are oppressed. Feminist theory, how women are oppressed. Uh, crip theory, does anyone know what that one is? That's how the disabled people are oppressed. Change the word theory to theology, and now it's a syncretism between critical theory and Christianity. So crip theology is a doctrine of the oppression of the uh, disabled that comes from a Marxist worldview. Okie dokie. All right. Um, so here's a feminist theologian, so a critical theory theorist who calls herself a Christian, basically. And she says... No woman can serve two authorities, a master called scripture and a mistress called feminism. Now, I agree. Her view of feminism is entirely at odds with scripture. However, her call is for Christian women to abandon the scriptures and to instead embrace the Marxist ideology of feminism. By the way, if you hold to what the scriptures say about men and women you'll find that the Bible holds men to a high standard of how they treat women. If you look around the world today, places where the biblical mandates for gender relations are practiced have women who are treated significantly better than you'll find in, for example, Middle Eastern contexts where that 
pedophilic, perverse warlord Muhammad that false prophet and his teachings are practiced. And if that statement doesn't get this video kicked off of YouTube, then stick around. Something else will. So feminism, by their own admission, is at odds with the scripture. Here's another statement. Now this is, this is, this is great. Look at how she actually spells it. This is not a, uh, a typo. She says, in short, critical feminist theology, the theology of critical theory from a feminist perspective, names theologically the curiarchal bondage. That's like patriarchy, but patriarchy is too masculine, so curiarchy is more broad of women slash men in Western society and church, even though the West is where women thrive more than other places because of our Christian roots here. Uh, She actually puts an asterisk there where the O should be in the word theology. Now, this is actually a common uh, um, thing if you're like writing in a newspaper and you have to report someone said a bad word, so you write the consonants and you put an asterisk you know, where the, where the vowel is supposed to be. You've seen that before, right? Do you know why she had to censor the word theology? Because it's related to the Greek word theos, meaning God. And the word God is masculine. So oppressive, right? <laughs> uh, but notice what she's saying here. Kyrarchy cannot be toppled except when the basis or bottom of the Kyrarchal pyramid, which consists of the exploitation of multiply oppressed women, becomes liberated. So the notion of liberation theology is that the system is set up to oppress the, uh, the critical groups. So the liberation theologian's mandate is to topple the pyramid, to, to crash the structure. This is why you'll constantly see in the Marxist circles not that they're trying to build a better society, but first that they're trying to crash and tear down our current society. This is why it is perfectly acceptable then to burn down Minneapolis whenever there's an unfortunate situation involving a uh, white cop and a uh, African-American criminal, right? They're not building up a better Minneapolis. They're tearing down the Minneapolis that exists. At least that's what was happening back in 2020. Here's another uh, feminist theologian, Lisa Isherwood. Now, I can't make this stuff up. <laughs> uh, Lisa Isherwood wrote a book entitled The Fat Jesus, Feminist Explorations and Boundaries and Transgressions. Uh, now, this is one, apparently, a critical theology of uh, overweight people in which she blames, apparently, Christianity for causing stigma with the overweight people. I'm like, okay, so it's entirely the the Bible's fault. It has nothing to do with the fact that we give Barbie dolls to children, Barbie dolls which are anatomically impossible. If if Barbie was a real person, she would flop over and die. No one can have that kind of thing. Okay, enough with the fat Jesus thing. That's just flat weird. Now she uh, traces some of the history of feminist theology And she basically says that the very fabric of Christianity is that which caused the exclusion of women in the world. Uh, Nothing that women are more excluded in non-Christian cultures, whatever. 
But then it becomes a very Christological problem, right? Because she says, if Christ could not experience being female, because Christ is male, then the question arose as to whether the female state could be redeemed. Since Christianity is all about redeeming the woman, and Jesus was a man, then isn't there a shortcoming there? Uh, this is an argument, by the way, that's brought up by a non-Christian, but feminist scholars, theologians accepted it anyway. So this is when we start to get into a different soteriology. Redemption, then, within feminist Christology is about liberation. Therefore, it involves struggle against oppression, as well as struggle for personal integrity and human freedom. It's about wholeness and transformation. Do you see the move that she did there? We say that redemption is about Jesus paying the sins for the world and freeing anyone, giving him eternal life if he'll believe in Christ. That view of redemption has absolutely nothing to do with sin and eternity. It's about liberation here and now. Well, guess what? The gospel has a lot more to offer than feminist theology does from the critical uh, theory perspective. Uh, please don't tag me as a misogynist, obviously, the biblical view is very much pro-woman. Um, here we have a, a queer theologian uh, in which he talks about queer theologies, queer theology being the theological side of queer theory, the critical theory. Queer theologies undo traditional theology by deconstructing it. Have you heard the term deconstructionalism being tossed around? Right? Whenever... Uh, uh, a lot of Christian celebrities who were famous in speaking out in favor of Christianity oh, 10 years ago have since deconstructed, meaning they have abandoned Christianity, in favor typically of Marxist ideology. So queer theologies undo traditional theology by deconstructing it, by cr critiquing the patriarchy and heteronormative assumptions at Plainus Productions. Queer theologies liberate Christianity from the bondage of patriarchy and heteronormativity. So these are theologies that are trying to undo biblical Christianity. I say biblical Christianity, he says traditional Christianity. In a broad sense, there are certain similarities that you can find between the Bible and even other denominations outside of our circles. This notion that Jesus died for sin is found all over evangelicalism, and that's something that they're trying to undo. Um, now we have a quote from a Brown theologian. Brown theology is the theological side of Brown theory, which deals with the Latino-Latina population. And he describes mission integral. Did I say that right? The Spanish word? Yes. Uh, I'm a little on the gringo side, if you haven't noticed. So forgive my bad Spanish. The mission of the whole church through the whole of humanity in all its forms, personal, communal, social, economic, ecological, and political. This is brown soteriology, a Latina o view of salvation. Now that might be a Latino view of salvation, but it's not a biblical view of salvation. According to this liberation theologian, the idea is that the mission of the church is all about social economic, ecological, political problems. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference between that brown theology and what the Bible actually says about our Latino friends? That if you're a Latino, 
Your sin was put on Christ at Calvary. And if you believe in Jesus, then you will be saved. But that's not just a message for the Latinos. It's for the gringos, for the Africanos, for everybody, right? All of humanity's sins were put on Christ. Anyone who believes in Christ will have eternal life. Eternal life is so much more than having your political candidate chosen today. Do you see why brown theology falls so far short of what the Bible actually has to offer? Okay. You're probably thinking, oh, Dr. Paul, you're just a grumpy fundamentalist picking on those queer theologians and brown theologians. They're all liberals. We're evangelicals. This would never happen in evangelicalism, right? Wrong! (laughs) Has anyone ever heard of the organization Campus Crusade for Christ? They've changed their name to CRU um, because crusade is a uh, rather uh, uh, nuanced term, so they shortened the crusade part, took Christ out of their name. I haven't figured that one out yet. But Campus Crusade CRU is uh, one of the largest evangelical organizations in the world. They had a budget of like half a billion dollars per year several years ago whenever I looked. So I think it's a rather fair look at a a cross-section of evangelicalism. Does that make sense? Every Campus Crusade missionary is backed by a team of supporters in America, just like Lynn and I are backed by y'all and other like-minded supporters. So whatever it is that we're teaching is the same stuff that you're teaching, right? Because we're like-minded. So if we look at what Campus Crusade is doing, I think we can get a pretty good picture, more or less, of what is happening in America in evangelicalism. Does that make sense? Okay. So back in 2020, we had um, a lot of the riots and stuff that were going on in the aftermath of George Floyd and the, the unfortunate situation that that is. I don't know a single person who would say that that's the way it should have ended. Um, and a lot of Campus Crusade people were getting behind them and joining in this wokeism. And this had been going on for quite a while. I'd, I'd already been seeing videos popping up on YouTube and whatnot of Campus Crusade um, conferences where they would have a giant communal prayer renouncing their whiteness and asking God forgiveness for their white privilege and all of this wokeism, Marxist stuff. Well, all this started coming to the surface in 2020. So a group within crew who are more traditional um, assembled a 179-page document documenting this stuff and calling for unity within Campus Crusade. It circled internally. In November 2020, they released it to Campus Crusade staff and it bounced around. On, in May 2021, they released it on the Campus Crusade website for the public to see. And then I tried to download it in August 2021 for a paper I was working on in this book, and it had already been withdrawn from the website. Uh, reason was not given. I don't know why they're trying to keep this a secret. Fortunately, I found it through another means, and you can find it from that link at the bottom of the slide. So if you look at those page numbers, you'll see all sorts of talk about BLM, that's Black Lives Matters, the movement. By the way, of course black lives matter. Jesus died for black people. 
you don't think Jesus cares about black life. We would go a step further. We would say black eternal life matters. I, I kid you not, I talk about this in really conservative churches all around America. And I say the same thing to them that I'll tell to you right now. If you think black lives don't matter, then meet me in the parking lot afterwards, and I'm going to beat the white trash out of you. <laughs> I, I say this wherever I go, and so far nobody has met me in the parking lot. Because conservatives agree, of course black lives matter, right? We love our black brothers and sisters in Christ. We love our black neighbors, you know? Uh, in America, how can you not have a black friend, right? It, it, it is absurd. What is the opposite of black lives matter? Black lives don't matter? Nobody's promoting that nonsense. Okay, moving along. So here's a, a section from that publication that at Crew 1519, uh, at leadership, staff, and student conferences, we have an overwhelming number of social justice speakers and activists promoting the critical theory and Marxism and whatnot. This is because the mid-century social gospel, including liberation theology, anti-violence theology, uh, black and feminist theology, CRT, critical race theory, and much of today's social justice movement have a radically different view of Christ's atonement. This alternative theory of the atonement is called Christus Victor, and in practical application, it serves to transform the mission of the church to, one, emulating Jesus and serving the poor and liberating the oppressed, and two, expanding Jesus' kingdom through the tearing down of demonic strongholds of oppression, power structures, and systemic injustice. So what they're saying is that this stuff that is happening in Campus Crusade, it all boils down to a different view of the atonement. It's called Christus Victor. Now, the biblical view, which we discussed earlier is that God is infinitely holy and separate from that which is unholy, that the sin of the world was laid on Christ so that sin is not a barrier between God and man, but that by believing in Christ for eternal life, God will give you eternal life and you'll be with him forever. Amen? That's the biblical view. The Christus Victor view is entirely different. It looks nothing like the biblical view. In that view, God and the world do not have a real separation, if you will. We're not going to be separate from God for eternity in the lake of fire. Now, the Bible does say that, but typically the Christus Victor proponent will hold to a low view of Scripture. You silly fundamentalists, don't take the Bible so seriously. No, 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 no. In the Christus Victor view, Christ did not die so that God and the world, God could save sinners, Rather, by dying, Christ was establishing a bit of the kingdom here and now. Ignore the fact that the kingdom is described so clearly in the Old Testament as the fulfillment of the, uh, of the covenants. No, no, no. It's about building social justice here and now. And we are to be building the kingdom now through social justice. Makes sense. Not at all a biblical worldview. And in the end, by the way, it becomes a very self-righteous thing because now it is my works that builds the kingdom and promotes the, the cross, right? It's not about grace anymore. It's about works. By the way, it's not a, uh, it's a, it's a complete um, Trojan horse. It's not, it, they, they pretend as if they're giving. But Marxism is not a giving worldview. 
It's about taking. It's about identifying who has and robbing them to give to the have-nots. They'll always try to flip up their vocabulary on that one. Get you upside down using the wrong words. Don't fall for it. Okay. Moving along. So here's another evangelical. Uh, this is uh, David Gushi, who was a uh, professor in a Southern Baptist seminary, I believe it was. And he was removed from office because he became a feminist in the anti-biblical sense, not the biblical sense of actually promoting women. Now notice what he says. To the extent that we practice his, Jesus, peacemaking, justice-making, community-restoring, relationship-healing teachings, we participate in the inaugurated kingdom of God, meaning the kingdom is already here, not postponed, but here now, and we participate in it through social justice. This is what it means to be a follower or disciple of Jesus Christ. This is also the primary task of the Christian church. So all this business about going around spreading the gospel, helping non-believers become believers in Christ, so that instead of spending eternity in the lake of fire, they will be forever with God in the new heaven, in the new earth, the greatest deal ever? Oh no, that's secondary. Because we need to restore the community here and now. You see what kind of a Trojan horse that is? Selling short. Ugh. Of course, we have the Red Letter Christian Movement, which says that it follows in Christ's footsteps. Uh, you can go to their website, and they have a blog with all sorts of weird tags, a category specifically for LGBTQ+. What's this blog post? What little Nas X is telling us about the hell we create. Often in this school of thought, you'll hear hell as a current experience. They spiritualize hell just like they spiritualize the kingdom into a current thing. You're not going to go to hell when you die. Hell is here now. If you're an addict, you're just creating hell for yourself. If you struggle with anger, you're just making a hell for yourself. But in the end, you'll be with God. No, no, no. Well, let's take a look at what they're saying. Here is the Red Letter Pledge. I dedicate my life to Jesus and commit to live as if Jesus meant the things he said in the Red Letters of Scripture. Red Letters being the typeset where we put red type for what Jesus said. I will seek first the kingdom of God as on earth as it is in heaven and live in a way that moves toward God's dream. Where the first are last and the last are first. Where the poor are blessed and the peacemakers the children of God. Working towards a society where all are treated equally and resources shared equitably. If you think it's a good idea for resources to be shared equitably, I invite you to come to Ukraine, where they tried for 70 years to have communism. It did not work out. To this day, people are still suffering, and we're now seeing a whole lot of slaughtering going on because of the weakness that was inflicted on this poor country because they fell for this nonsense. Like Jesus, I will interrupt injustice and stand up for life and dignity of all. I will allow my life to point toward Christ everywhere I go. Right? There we go with the interrupt injustice again. Now, these are, are, there are some nice words in there, right? I will allow my life to point toward Christ. Well, that's what I want to do. I want my life to point towards Christ. But when I say that, I mean that Christ died for sinners. He died for everybody. And I want others to see that and believe in Christ for eternal life. 
I don't just want them to have a better life here and now. Uh, Rebecca Vocal is a cisgendered lesbian theologian um, who says very much uh, in the, the, the same vein, I won't read all of that, that her queer theology is rooted very much in a here and now, already not yet approach to the kingdom. She has to have a kingdom here that she is building through social justice. Does that make sense? Now, one really big weakness in this whole thing. All of these social justice things aren't only just built on a false view of the cross, but on a false view of the kingdom that says that the kingdom is here and now, right? What does the Bible say? That the kingdom is not here and now. So if the kingdom is postponed, then we have just kicked out from under this table all the legs that it stands on, because they no longer have a kingdom to build, but instead we look forward to Christ bringing that in. So that's the liberation theology. Uh, I'm supposed to shut up here pretty soon, right? Right about now. I'm getting close. Okay, well, uh, uh, you're probably thinking, can't he just be a normal missionary and let us go to lunch? No, I can't, because normal missionaries are falling for Marxist garbage, and I don't want you all to fall for it either. (laughs) Eco-theology is very much the same. We'll go through it rather quickly. By eco-theology, I'm talking about justice specifically for the environment, right? Now, nobody is saying we should go out there and trash the planet. We're all saying we should be responsible with the environment, right? I mean, goodness, we're not going to be here forever. We need to think about what kind of earth we want to leave behind for Willie Nelson when we're gone. But the roots of all of this is anti-biblical. I mentioned that eco-theology and eco-justice is related to social justice. Here's one uh, eco-theologian. He says, practices of social justice hitherto associated with humanitarian mission turn out to be indispensable for rightly perceiving the natural natural world and doing justice to creation. So in their own words, I'm not drawing this connection up myself, but according to the leftist, Marxist, critical theologians, eco-theologians, they are all saying it themselves, that eco-theology, eco-justice, and social justice are one and the same. So if you're standing up for oppressed races or oppressed genders or oppressed sexualities, you have to do it with the environment in mind. Now all of this is rooted uh, in Marxism, It goes a bit further, though, to Darwinism. Um, Here is a statement made by uh, an atheist, uh, Theodor Gus Tyson. We are all connected to each other biologically, to the earth chemically, to the rest of the universe atomically. That's kind of cool. That makes me smile. And I actually feel quite large at the end of that. Because in the end, this is about lifting up man to be at the same level of the grander source of all things. It's not that we're part of the universe, we're part of the universe. We're in the universe and the universe is in us. Now a technical term for this worldview is continuity of being. That mankind is from the same source as everything else. It's distinct from the biblical view, which is often called creator-creation distinction. That God was an existence apart from matter and that he spoke everything into existence. He didn't mingle himself with creation, 
the way that we see in the pagan myths. Often a pagan creation myth starts with some kind of water, and then out of the water comes a god, and then this god kills that god, and then takes a piece of that god and makes a man out of it. See how that's a continuity of being? The distinction between man and god is blurred. Well, it's the same thing in the atheist worldview, where we're all in this big bang together and blow up, and we can talk the philosophical implications of that another time. But that's the starting point for the theory. Well, it happens that the theology starts with the theory. Eco-theology traces back, essentially, to this man, Lynn White Jr., in a speech that he gave in 1966 that was published in 1967. He considers himself a churchman. He's a, he's a Christian. But look at how he starts his, his argument here. Despite Darwin, we are not in our hearts part of the natural process. We are superior to nature, contemptuous of it, willing to use it for our slightest whim. Does he start with the Bible? Does he go to Moses? Does he go to Genesis? No. He goes to Charles Darwin as his starting point. And then he goes on, blah, blah, blah. Christianity, he would say, bears a huge burden of guilt for the ecological crisis that's going on. He actually uh, praises the beatniks of his days there in the 60s. Uh, looking around, some of us might have been around in the 60s and remember the, the beatniks and the hippies. He praises them for their affinity for Zen Buddhism, an Eastern worldview. But where is the pollution coming from in the world today, guys? Is it from the West or is it from China? Kind of a uh, glaring problem that no one wants to talk about. Um, so here is a uh, piece from an article that was published by the Hodos Institute, which is an evangelical organization in Ukraine, speaking for ecotheology against the way we think about the environment and the Bible. But this utilitarian and anthropocentric view has little to do with the Bible. Rather, it's rooted in the modernistic worldview. It is also rooted in the anthropocentric view of the salvific word of Christ. And they promote interfaith dialogue to resolve the uh, ecological crisis that they perceive. Do you see what they just did? They just trampled underfoot the biblical teaching about the cross, saying this idea that the cross was about saving men and removing uh, sin as a barrier between man and God, that has nothing to do with what actually happened, according to this evangelical organization. Um, here's our eco-theologian again, Willis Jenkins. He would say that the doctrine of reconciliation uh, deals with the relations with all creatures being restored and redeemed. Well, there's that word redeemed again, right? Is redemption about paying for sin and releasing people from... Uh, the future in hell? Not in this worldview. It's about making the environment better. He frees them to restorative service in a land damaged by sin. Now we'll agree that the uh, land is damaged by sin. If you look at Genesis, you'll see that God cursed the earth as a result of the first sin. But that's not what they see going on here. They would see farmers turning land into something productive for humans as being a sin against the land. Uh, Again, do you see how their treatment of the cross is, fits best on a Christus Victor view of the kingdom? Where it's not that man and God are separate from sin, but rather that we're building a kingdom here and now. 
You see how they're using redemption, not in the sense of removing the sin barrier, not in the sense of, of freeing man and, and giving him eternal life, but rather about restoring the environment. By the way, the dispensationalists will say, oh, the world is going to be restored. We're going to get a new earth. That's exciting. We have so much more to offer than the eco-theologians of this ilk do. But let's look at, that's the uh, soteriological side. Let's look at the eschatology here, right? Here's Laura Ruth Yordi, <coughs> an eco-theologian. And in her book, she talks about the kingdom. The kingdom is not a generic ideal that Jesus happened to talk about during his ministry. We agree. But the realization of his redemption in the world. And redemption is another way of describing bringing back to God. So see how she takes a key term and redefines it. So Christian witness to Christ and his work ultimately returning all of creation back to God, that return of communion is the kingdom. Do you see how she builds her eco-justice on a kingdom now framework? We build the kingdom now, how? Through acts of environmentalism. Here's another speaker from the Red Letter Christian movement. Jesus said that this peaceable kingdom, in the context he was mentioning Isaiah 11.6, is already breaking loose in our midst. To be a kingdom people is to join God in what he's doing and to participate with God in rescuing nature from the mess we've made of it. Now this is great because he actually uses a Bible verse. Goodness, I'll be sorting through all sorts of woke quotes left and right and nobody uses the Bible in, those, in, those, in that world because uh, they don't believe the Bible. They're very blatant in their rejection of conservatism. But since... This woke theologian wants to appeal to Isaiah 11.6. Let's take a look at what the passage actually says. This is the famous, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Uh, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Is that happening now? Is that what's breaking loose? When we turned all of the, the children loose to uh, go to the, uh, the, the Sunday schools, are they now playing with serpents? I certainly hope not because we're going to have a lot smaller children's ministry next week if we do. Of course not. This is eschatological. Look at what it says there later. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. What's that a reference to? The messianic kingdom, right? If we take this plainly, simply for what it's saying, if we accept that this is what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom, then this whole entire red-letter movement flies right out the window. Does that make sense? Because the kingdom is not just some generic, goofy idea, spiritual realm. Well, we don't really get to have wolves and lambs laying together. Uh, we'll just restore the environment instead. No, no, it's so much more. God has offered an actual messianic kingdom. And part of that is a redaction, a curtailing of the curse. So, if the kingdom is postponed, then all of that eco-justice doesn't have a single leg to stand on because they always have to build it on the kingdom being here now. Uh, so far, anyway, maybe they'll come up with another, uh, another form in the future. Okay, so what have we looked at? Faith alone and Christ alone and postponement the theology. If we get those two things straight, if we understand what happened on the cross, and if we understand what the kingdom is as a future reality, then we can evade so much of the Marxism and other stuff, baloney really, that's working its way into evangelicalism. Um, am I supposed to do like a Baptist altar call now, or do I uh, just say bye-bye? Or...
Brain dismiss. Okay. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for giving us the Bible, the Word of God that we can rely on. Thank you for giving us the conventions of language by which we can understand and properly interpret and rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, please help us to keep these things in mind and not fall victim to the Marxist garbage that is set so hard against you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, guys, you all are dismissed.